think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 13th episode, extra spooky edition. Yeah, <laughs> lucky number 13. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so this week is a parliamentary break week, so uh, it's been a little quiet here in Ottawa. Uh, all the same, we have some content for you. Uh, we're going to be going over and doing an explanation of kind of how question period works, uh, sort of what the incentives are, how people prepare for it, especially on the government side. Because uh, I guess neither of us have really worked on the opposition side doing that, so... No. Yeah, so... Maybe someday we can we can get you the the other end of that. We want to talk about a terrible take that landed this week in McLean's magazine. Uh, the dinner cons- parties for everyone. Dinner parties for all. Bring your own brown envelopes. Uh, the membership slash dropout deadline for the uh, Conservative Party and some of the shenanigans that have happened there. And uh, finish it off by talking about once again our old friend Brad Wall and seeing what he's up to. So, Tian, do you want to do you want to kind of discuss your experience, uh, like working for the minister when you were uh, in government, about how question period worked and how that worked across the whole of government? Yeah, so I think question period is one of these things that, from an outsider looking into Ottawa, a lot of people don't understand. If you ever go and you sit in the parliamentary press gallery, it's sort of a bewildering experience. I yeah. can remember my first time going, and like when I was twelve years old or something. And you sort of sit there and not familiar with sort of the procedure and all the rest of it, but you hear these people heckle each other and yell at each other and braid each other. And everyone seems to always come across to sort of taken aback by it. Yeah. Yeah. You often hear that in stuff like, wow, like the school children were shocked at how badly behaved the MPs were. We should actually back up just one quick second and uh, tell people, I mean, I imagine everyone listening to this show probably knows what question period is, Uh, but still it'll just quick definition. It is every day. Uh, at 2 o'clock, 2.15? Except, except for Fridays. Except for Fridays. Uh, MPs come to the House, and the opposition gets to ask the government questions. It's sort of broken up by party as to who gets to ask when. There's sort of an agreed order, though the Speaker can kind of like pick whoever they want technically. It doesn't often work that way. So, And then the idea is that you get answers out of the government to questions you have. Okay, back to it, Tian. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of people take away... Um, not very much from question period when they watch it. And sort of the old joke is that it's called question period and not answer period because a lot of it is just the government deflecting. Um, But at the same time, it's very much an important tool and it's one of the only tools the opposition has to sort of build the narrative of the day. Yeah. If there isn't tools like question period, the opposition often struggles to get media attention. Mm -hmm. Their press conferences aren't as well attended as government press conferences. Yeah. And so the government is very much able to drive the narrative of the day. Question period serves as an opportunity for the opposition to speak to sort of the assembled press gallery and tell them what issues they're worried about. Yeah. Often those issues reflect uh, stories written by the press. A lot of the questions of the day that come out of the opposition are ones that have been found in the headlines that morning. But some, sometimes they aren't. Yeah. Either way, they serve a question period overall serves as sort of an important accountability tool. Yeah. In order for the government not just to generally ignore the legislature, do governing quietly, and sort of have their way with the media narrative. Yeah, we talked a couple weeks ago about uh, order paper questions, which are kind of the written version. Uh, where, and I'll, I'll just quickly reiterate this for people who haven't listened to that episode. 
basically, opposition MPs submit questions. I think government MPs can technically as well. Yes, they do. Um, up to four written questions that ask very technical or specific questions about operations, etc. How much money's been spent on whatever thing. Uh, and they get very specific written answers that were compiled by the departments themselves. So the civil servants end up putting together the answers, and then I think they go through a political filter at the end. Ish, but very, often very you don't light. you don't really need to because yeah. it's just basically technical information. But that gives that basically lets the government lets the opposition use the government to do its homework for it, Correct. which is very very useful because they don't have a whole lot of resources. And uh, our interview with Dr. Wilson too, if you listen to that from a couple weeks ago, he'll, he'll touch on this as well. Um, but question period is kind of the uh, the flashier cousin of order paper questions in that you're not expecting detailed, administratively correct answers about you know technical details. You want to basically get them to answer a question badly enough that they get on the news. Yeah. What I, what I think is interesting from this, because a lot of people might be familiar with question period, what I think very few people are familiar with is sort of what happens behind the scenes and in the day leading up to question period yeah. every single day. Because keep in mind, the way question period works is that every single day at 2.15 in the afternoon, Every minister in the government technically can be asked a question for, you know, the best part of an hour, and they have to be ready to answer anything and everything. So you're basically having your entire government uh, sort of hostage to this 45-minute period in the afternoon, uh, lest it look catastrophically bad for the government on TV that night. So it's a lot of pressure, and I personally think not a fantastic use of government time. But we can go more into that later. Yeah, it, it sort of depends on your, your perspective on this. So under the Harper government, um, question period got, sort of preparation for question period got a lot more serious. Um, where previously question period was sort of done ad hoc and ministers were expected to prepare for it themselves. Under the Harper government, there was an hour set aside before question period every day for ministers to be grilled by PMO staff in called QP prep in preparation for question period. So, so let me start, start the morning and you wake up or a staffer from every minister's office wakes up at around 5 a.m., 5.30 a.m. And this is what's called the issues manager. And so the issues manager's role is to read through the headlines of the day and find every reference to their department. So for instance, if you're working at DFO, you're going to find all the fishing related stories, everything about the lobster fishery, the seal hunt, anything you can find. And you're going to start developing your media lines and your responses to this. And you're going to see if there's anything that caught you off guard. And if there is, there's supposed to be departmental staff, sort of fairly senior departmental staff, uh, awake at that time, ready to field your questions. So if something's caught you off guard, you call sort of Jimmy in lobster fisheries and he'll tell you... Always fisheries with and, you. And he'll tell you about the lobster quota. And so uh, about an hour later, uh, depends depends on the government. I hear the liberals are having their issues call at 7.30. Of course. Well, they're liberals. Like, they're, they're all, <laughs> half, they all have like hour later. fancy parties the night before. You, so. need, you need the extra sleep. Yeah, they get, need time to like perfectly quaff their hair and change into their fancy suits. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so the way we did it was there was an issues manager or Parla Ferris guy on the phone uh, on a joint conference call between somewhere between 30 and 45 uh, different ministers. And they're all on the phone and they're all muted. And there'll be uh, the issues manager at prime, uh, in the PMO, which is one of the more senior positions, will effectively take 
20 minutes to pick and grill whoever he chooses on whatever questions related to their portfolio in the news that day. Mm -hmm. Before the call, there's some back and forth. Um, under the director of issues management in the PMO, there are various sort of uh, issues managers, and they each have a handful of departments that they're responsible for, say five to ten. Um, and they go back and forth on media lines beforehand and sort of let you know what the director of issues management is interested in. So you get a little bit prepared. You sort of can expect what he's going to ask, but you can't always. Right. And so you're on the phone with 40, let's say 40 people, and you get asked your question, like, uh, what, are, what are we doing on X topic? And you have to be there, like, ready to give an answer and give a coherent response to something that's happened sort of earlier that morning that's just developing. And it's sort of interesting from, uh, from sort of an internal perspective because the issues calls very much can be used as a gauge of how prepared and how well coordinated other offices are. Yeah. Where if your issues manager isn't prepared to speak and defend their department to the PMO, then you must you can sort of infer that the rest of the minister's office isn't functioning that well. So there's some gossip that comes out of it always as to which offices sort of bombed the issues call that morning. And on the issues call, the worst thing you can do is say, I don't know, let me get back to you. Mm. Because uh, from the PMO side, what happens after the issues call is that the directors of issues management takes that, has about an hour to assemble his or her notes, and then takes and goes and briefs the prime minister on the issues of the day. Put, to put that aside, the sort of the PMO side, following the issues call, uh, the way we did it at least, was we'd meet with the department. And when you meet with the department in the morning uh, with the parliamentary affairs people around, say, 7.30, 8 o'clock, you're able to task them with what's called a QPN or a question period note. Sure. Which is to say, we want all the information you have on the latest developments in the lobster fisheries. Yeah. And so you get that document a couple hours later. It really, it's a high priority document for the department and it really sends them scrambling every time. Um, if it's on sort of a unique issue because they have to dig up uh, the relevant facts, the relevant policy advisors, contact them very quickly and then send the document up through their chain of approvals in order to hand it off to the minister's office and still give the minister's office time to brief their minister using the relevant facts from the question period note. Right. So the, the bulk of the morning um, for a couple staff within the minister's office and of course a lot of staff in the department is preparation for question period because of the what, what's at stake if your minister answers a question wrong or uses incorrect facts or any of these things makes it a very vulnerable moment every day exactly like that's what's going to get you on ctv at six o'clock is like you messing up that's it's there's a great donald savoie quote so donald savoie is a public administration scholar in canada he's written the same book six times but it's still quite good <laughs> um and he says the difference between the government and the private sector is that in the private sector if you do your job correctly you know 95 percent of the time it's fine no one will care in politics Everyone is concerned with the 5% of the time you didn't do your job well, and they will never let you forget about it. Yeah. Question period is also sort of important internally, as uh, the PMO has only a limited number of uh, sort of points of contact with the minister's office on sort of day-to-day -day affairs. And performance of ministers in question period, like when your minister's out traveling, unless something goes 
you know, noticeably, noticeably wrong and it makes headlines. There isn't really a sense from PMO as to how your minister is performing. Mm -hmm. So question period serves as basically a daily metric of your minister's performance. And so promotions, um, especially from parliamentary secretary to minister, are often based in part on an individual's performance in question period. So it serves a very important job promotion function. Yeah. Uh, which is one of the reasons why people tend to invest so much time and effort yeah. in preparation. Which is also interesting because you think about the role of, of cabinet ministers. Um, it's to be, you know, the administ the chief administrators of departments. You know, not so much in the operational sense, but to provide politically sensitive oversight. Um, and they're not getting those jobs because of their a subject matter expertise or b. Uh, you know, ability to oversee large bureaucracies. It's generally how good can they make the prime minister look on TV? Which, you know, that's not to, like, knock that as a concept. Like, I think the idea that we have basically inexpert citizen legislators who become ministers is a feature, not a bug of our system. They do pretty good jobs compared to, you know, like, in the U.S., for instance, they often will have subject matter experts, but often they are you know, quite politically compromised or captured by whatever interest they're supposed to be regulating. So I actually like our system, but it is important to bear in mind that their ability to answer questions and look good is a very important part of the job qualifications. Yeah, there's a heavy communications focus. If you look at uh, ministers who have floundered in terms of communications, it very much is the concept of drawing blood to sharks in question period. Yeah. And the calls for resignation quickly follow exactly like if you stumble over a lot of answers on a particularly sensitive file that you perhaps you know someone in your department may have mismanaged at some point you you are not long for this world yeah a, a good example of this recently um is stefan zion um who for all intents and purposes is an academic and very heavy into the policy side but the communication side was entirely absent yeah he was never quite good at that and so that really marked his tenure as uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs Which, in you know, a negative not, light. Not a department you need to like carefully phrase things or anything and like be a good communicator <laughs> all the time. It's not if, a... if only there was diplomacy needed in, in such a yeah. position. Poor guy. Um, so to sort of finish, finish the story, um, what goes sort of on an issues management after is, so you brief your minister generally they have things to do during the day you find a 20 minute window just before they go a 20 minute perhaps longer minute to uh to brief your minister before they go into uh what's effectively a cabinet meeting but it's called uh, uh qp prep and qp prep occurs in the cabinet room um which is in what's called the horseshoe of the house of commons and there'll be a couple select ministers that stay in the house because you have to have some in the house at all times and so the ones that are on house duty and are of a sort of nothing hot in the news on their portfolios, they'll stay in the house and all the other ministers will assemble um, in the cabinet room as well as the parliamentary secretaries who are essentially the substitutes for any ministers who are absent uh, because not all ministers have to be there each and every day. Yeah. Um, they go through question period prep. If you're the issues manager, you'll be standing and waiting. There's a lingering crowd of issues managers with binders and stuff like that who sort of hang out waiting for their minister, and they'll be getting text messages from PMO staff as to what lines they want to change, if there's any last-minute tweaks they want to do as to how your minister performed in question period or in QP prep and things along those lines. And then from there, you have like a 15-minute window, and then you're into question period. And then as staff, you go get lunch. Uh, you linger... 
either in the lobby, which is the antechamber to the House of Commons. There's a bunch of TVs set up in there. So there's a couple tables at the far end where staff will sort of gossip and watch uh, QP performance and sort of internally heckle each other and that sort of thing. Or you can go off to the cafeteria and get the lunch special and watch uh, Question Period on, on, on the TV screens I, there. I gotta add, how good is the food? Um, it's not too bad, actually. Yeah. It's this not is the cafeteria, though, not the parliamentary restaurant. The parliamentary restaurant is a cut above. Yeah. I've only had the opportunity to eat there a couple times. Yeah. But the uh, the restaurants, or sorry, the cafeteria is like a normal cafeteria, mm-hmm. but they have suspiciously cheap prices, especially for breakfast. You have mm. to wonder how subsidized they are. Probably, probably quite subsidized, I would, I would hazard a guess. Um... So yeah, that sort of wraps up uh, your like your experience with question period. Do you want to talk about kind of the the broader like what do you what do you think like it doesn't do a good job at what it does? I think it's uh, it's an important institution. It's hard to come into question period uh, as an outsider and to watch it. There are obviously little tweaks uh, that people have tried to do or have suggested that uh, people want to change the decorum of it a little bit. Yeah, and be I think it... a lot of people were floating having the uh, the speaker. Like be able to compel answers from people, or sort of like shut down. Like that's what the Australian speaker does. Yeah, yeah. It's that is a terrible idea for various reasons. Um, other things like the Liberals have tried to do not clapping, um, as sort of a let's encourage more wholesome answers. But this hasn't worked. They still clap intermittently. Uh, they still heckle, and as as do our benches and your benches. Like it goes yeah, around always. Yeah, it's what you do. Yeah, it's very hard not to. It's just very much a team environment, a little bit like a sporting event. Oh, absolutely. It's like it's honestly, it's like a sporting event, except it's the two stands, like the the fan sides, and there's no actual game going on in the middle. It's just yeah. the fans yelling at each other. Yeah, it's pretty good. So the the urge to resist heckling is not one that's been overcome in recent years. No, yeah, the, uh, the heckling is, is is a force for good also in the universe, <laughs> and I'm not opposed to it. Um, yeah, broadly speaking, I think Question Period does a good job at the sort of getting stuff on TV aspect, and I think there is the, the legit informational side that, you know, it helps promote, uh, well, it helps spotlight difficulties that the government is having and whatnot and sort of highlight their shortcomings, which is the point. On the other hand, I really do think it takes up a lot of time that would probably best be spent on other things, like just on pure defense, on stuff that might not even come up. Having a minister's rotation might be not a terrible idea, or the the prime minister's questions idea that the UK has had for a long time. So yeah, so uh, so do you want to explain that? So the prime minister's question time, uh, as it's called in the United Kingdom, because they call it question time rather than question period, Mm -hmm. or prime minister's question period is one of the is one of the uh, ideas being pitched in the parliamentary reform and one of the things being pushed back, at least by the Conservative Party, um, in the fellow in the ongoing filibuster in uh, Prague procedural. Still not over. Well, I guess it's like it was a break week, so so literally nothing has changed. Not a whole lot of things. uh, since we last recorded. Uh, but yeah, Prime Minister's Questions is basically every Wednesday at noon, um, instead of having normal question time, as they would call it over there, uh, they have the Prime Minister answer questions, and usually it's the leader of the opposition, kind of like w- Wimbledon style, uh, 1v1, uh, going back and forth. Um, and that's pretty good. I mean, it, it helps, you know, you're going to get answers directly from the Prime Minister, and I think Trudeau's been noted by the opposition for not going terribly often to uh, to question period. I think the average prime ministerial attendance rate at question period is like 46%. Yeah, but like honestly, and like this is kind of what I'm alluding to, is that like I don't blame them because it's like 
they have a big job to do and frankly like you know capering before the jackals uh, for an hour a day is not the best use of their time. So I would I would disagree with that. I, I think I think there's a role for it, and I think there's like some time you need to like caper before the jackals, but like the sheer volume of it, I think is unnecessary right now. If if we see a question period as a mechanism of accountability for the opposition to the government, yeah, I I truly think it is important because that at least more than once a week, because the number of issues that rise and fall on any given day yeah. is pretty substantial. And so having a prime minister's question period, say, on, on any day, yeah. gives a six-day window where you're not able to ask sure. the prime minister but on, if, on events and issues that have arisen. Even for the other ministers, though, it's like you're, you're hijacking the whole government from 1 p.m. to 3 p.m., basically, and you're... Yeah, you know, and plus some time in the morning to prep. Like it's like four of their hours a day are taken up by question period. Being directly being a minister is not easy. It no, requires adding four hours on to your uh, your I nine to think, five. I just think it's not a great use of their time. That they like it. Just like perhaps we could rebalance that a little bit to have them spend maybe a little less time prepping for question period. I don't know because also the, the, like we were talking about the value of it, and I th- I agree that it does have a lot of value. But it's such a, like, bizarre, alchemical, like, trickle-up kind of thing where it's sort of stories from the media and stuff the opposition researchers dig up sort of feed off each other and the sort of how the ATIP process feeds into this and the, like, PMQs feed into... Or not PMQs, sorry. Um, order paper questions feed into this. Yeah. And sort of all that's taken together to create this, like, Frankenstein monster, like, battery of questions that yeah. you're then subjected to and, like somehow the the media know which ones are good and which ones are bad. And they'll take the bad ones and show them on TV that night. And for the eight people who still watch the 6 o'clock news, that'll like, ah, oh, well, uh, no, no, I know it's not eight people. And no, 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 that, that's, not, that. that's not why I'm making but this But I just space. think it's such, like, if we really value the accountability mechanism and, like, I just think there are perhaps ways we could, A, have a more direct method without the intermediation of cable news and B, have it be a little more respectful of minister's time. So, minister's time, I shed no tears for. <laughs> uh, having been in charge of minister's time and scheduling minister's time and knowing exactly how hard it is, I don't regret that our democratic institutions sap some of that uh, in the slightest. I, I think what's important uh, from question period is that you see it sort of holistically in sort of the greater scheme of accountability. You used um, the in, or the example of the six o'clock news or the eight o'clock news or whatever news is on cable television. No, who, neither of us. Watch who, it. Whoever <laughs> watches cable television, I surely do not anymore. Yeah. Um, but I think that's sort of an old-fashioned way to think about things. I've, oh yeah, you get your clips now that you can share on Twitter and Facebook. Yeah. yeah so this is one of the things like MPs. It's less mediated than it used to be. Opposition MPs will simultaneously clip out their bits from a uh, question period and push them out through their social media channel. It gives their constituents an opportunity to see their MP, you know, holding the government to account, doing the job they were sent to Ottawa uh, for. And so there's a good feedback there. The other feedback loop is in terms of media and directing media. Media and journalists would never sort of like this characterization. But to a certain extent, question period and the questions asked by the opposition 
direct what journalists Absolutely. write their stories on. I completely agree with that. And that's a feedback loop, too, in the sense that, like, a lot of what the media does feeds what the question period prep does on the opposition side. Yeah. But, yeah, no, it is a, definitely a two-way street there. And, yeah, and then from the journalist stories of the day, the opposition gets to pick which ones they think are the juiciest or most significant. Mm-hmm. And they'll ask on that. And, of course, there'll be new clips. And it perpetuates the news cycle. And journalists will feed into it and sort of dig deeper based on the ongoing coverage. Uh, a good example of this, uh, if you think of sort of the back and forth, would be the questions around uh, fundraising and the Liberal Liberal Party fundraising and yeah. cash for access. A lot of that story ended up being driven. So I think it was the Globe that did a lot of the investigative yeah, yeah. reporting on it, yeah. which was one half of it. But the other half of it was very much driven by question period and by the non-response of the government and the fact that the government is giving non-responses rather than acting on this file. That makes a story. And so it's very much a holistic, like, positive reinforcement cycle that is good for Canadians writ large and for holding government to account. Yeah, no, I agree that, like, there, there's a valuable function being done here. I just, like, I wonder if it could be tweaked to perhaps better serve both purposes. Shed no tears for, no, the, for the time. It is entirely fair, Etienne. We, we disagree on lots of things. <laughs> Uh, next on our agenda today is uh, a piece published earlier this week in Maclean's by uh, one Scott Gilmore, uh, who, I don't know, is he married to a cabinet minister also? I don't know. He claims to be a conservative, but I've never seen yeah. him at any <laughs> any events ever. Yeah, no, and this isn't to like question his self-perception as a conservative. And for the record, he is married to, to Minister McKenna. Yeah, um, so he's a uh, Maclean's writer and sort of prominent... Uh, a pundit or critic of some sort. Um, he's written for, I think, the Washington Post has carried a couple of his pieces, and then McLean's probably most significantly. Yeah. And, um, and like you said, he's married to Catherine McKenna, who's which the environment been, minister. She's been spotty about disclosing in the past. Um, it's supposed to be one of the disclosures at the bottom yeah, of all of his articles, but some, sometimes it's missing. Yeah. I saw someone point out that his... Uh, our, our friends at News You Can Use, Tim Horton Presents, you, need, you know, that one. What do you uh, the, the, the Lefty Canadian podcast that... Uh, uh, no. No, remember you listened to the first one and you were like, oh, these guys are just stoners who... Uh, oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah anyway, uh, they're, they're a fellow podcast. They actually do some pretty good work. You should check them out. Um, but they talked about uh, Scott Gilmore's frequent uh, omissions of his uh, his marital status. Yeah, so it makes for this awkward tension that this uh, self-described conservative is the husband of a yeah. liberal cabinet minister. As and a journalist, it's uh, tricky. Some of his articles are excoriating of the prime minister, so yeah. I imagine he is not that well-liked at uh, <laughs> the spousal gatherings. I, I actually, I, I love to imagine what his family dinners look like, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, no, but coming back to the piece, um, so it, it's called Confessions of Self-Loathing Tory. And uh, the, the premise yes. is that the Conservative Party has lost its way and that uh, maybe it's time for a new party. Etienne is cradling his head in his hands now. Uh, Etienne, you seem like you have some thoughts on this. Yeah, so where to begin? Let's, let's actually start with his prescription. Let's actually talk sort of writ large about the article, uh, which is he says, uh, he sort of points out what he sees as some problems That's with the, the party. That's the diagnosis, not the prescription. Or, yeah, sorry. What, what he diagnoses as wrong with the party, and it's things like uh, better focus on liberty. He doesn't like some of the directions on social conservative issues and some of these other things the party has taken recently. 
uh, I would say particularly fueled by candidates like Kelly Leach and Brad Trost. And so he effectively pitches a solution of cleaving that wing of the party and mm-hmm. sort of the creation of a new center-right party. Well, he wants to talk about it. Yes, and where where does he want to talk about this? Yeah, this is actually my favorite part of this whole thing, uh, is that he wants to have a series of dinner parties in uh, Vancouver, Montreal, and Toronto to talk about a new direction for Canadian conservatism, which, you know, is just so (laughs) woefully out of touch (laughs) that it's amazing. I think Calgary, uh, to his credit, is in there. Oh, is it now? Okay, what's in the original piece? Uh, so he must have added. He actually started a website, the New Conservative Dinners or something, and it's like yes, right. the, um, the the dinner party circuit solution to what ails Canadian well, politics. And like, let's not like beat around the bush too much. Like this, this is the old PC party. Like yes. this is how the old PC party would do it. Would be to have like, ah, oh, we seem to be out of touch with our base. Let's have a fucking series of dinner parties with bankers in uh, in Toronto. Um, I think there's a lot of misplaced nostalgia for the PC party in uh, among, especially on the like center center left, because we think Harper is, is mean and he's the bad man, and uh, the like the new crop of conservatives are also mean and bad people, uh, and the PCs were you know so much better and nicer, um, and so much more civil, and we have people like Michael Chong and like oh look at that guy he's so good, but the the fact is that the PCs were an awful corrupt horrifically elitist party that had absolutely no concern for democratic accountability very concerned a lot of more concerned with enriching themselves and their friends uh no real ideological bearings to speak of just very opportunistic uh so i i just find a lot of the nostalgia for them totally misplaced as much as i have problems with the modern conservative party uh, so i don't wish for them to come back so my issue with scott gilmore's piece is the approach he takes to it which is to say the party is in the midst of a leadership race. Are you going to not wait for the result of the leadership race before jumping to conclusions? Mm-hmm. So what if Michael Chong wins? Yeah, well, he sounds... He's sort or, of written him off. Right? Or what if Aaron O'Toole or Andrew Scheer win? I, I think these are the candidates he would more self-identify with. What if it's not a Kelly Leach candidate that wins? Is it... Are you, are you sort of not... Are you, are you abandoning the party too soon at the chance where you have the best opportunity to influence policy and to be a voice within the party? Yeah. I don't think Scott Gilmore has ever really been engaged with the party, to my knowledge, uh, where he describes himself as a conservative and writes in media. That's been his only role, so to speak of. So I think without trying to initiate grassroots reform from within the party, yeah. it's perhaps a little quick to start from the outside of the party and yeah. to sort of try and hive off members. Well, and it's so, so funny because, like, if you compare it to how reform started, right, it's basically the opposite of this. Yes. It's like, instead of having dinner parties in Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver, it's like, let's have, you know, meetings in church basements and, you know, Airdrie and, you know, Red Deer and, I don't know, whatever small town in Saskatchewan. I'm actually <laughs> out of small town Saskatchewan. It was bizarre. I used to know them all. Not all of them. There are like 900, but... You said Airdrie um, and Red Deer, though. Those are both in Alberta. I know, I know. That's what I was trying to... You can't even was, give me a single... I was trying to switch to Saskatchewan. Uh, Weyburn. Weyburn. There you there go. go. Lloyd Minister, you get at least half of that one. Lloyd's like big enough. That, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, yeah, so... Like, it's the total opposite kind of ethos of like bottom-up democratic, you know, renewal. It's basically just like, oh, yeah, well, we'll just figure out what's best for the plebs as we used to do. And... Uh, 
Yeah, over the, over steak and oysters. The other question that comes up here is electoral viability. Oh yeah. Well, well, I mean, that's the thing. That's the whole thing with this like center right. Like, like it's the same thing in the U.S. too, where people are like, oh well, what if we had a moderate Republican party that wanted lower taxes, but also, and it's like like six people would vote for that party, and they all work at the Washington Post. Like that's the problem with that is no one actually finds this stuff attractive except for like absolutely bloodless newspaper columnists. So the the two ways I've seen this argument pitched is that if you bring back the PC party, that you're going to have off a bunch of conservative voters and you're going to make both conservative parties unviable, both center right parties yeah. uh, electorally unviable, and so it'll guarantee a liberal well, electoral okay. success. I'm old enough and, to remember three years ago when people were like, oh, the left NDP liberal split will mean that the conservatives will always be in power. So, I don't know. So, one of the one of the reasons people are pitching this as... That's one of the reasons people are consp- uh, pitching this as a conspiracy theory of Scott Gilmore is trying to forever wound the conservative yeah. party as sort of a, uh, a confederate of the liberals. Well, to put to be fair to that theory... He is one of the people in the country who would most personally profit <laughs> from that arrangement in the sense that he could have a great time opining in the media about this like new conservative party and what it means for Canadian and he would write a billion essays on the soul the fight for the soul of Canadian conservatism and his wife would keep her job as a cabinet minister so it would be like very yeah. good for the Gilmore McKenna household uh I don't actually think this conspiracy theory is true, but I see that there is a, a nexus of material interests that would serve to uh, perhaps inflame one's suspicions. So the pushback to the argument that it would lock in liberal majorities forever um, is that the uh, the liberal party would lose. Oh, yeah. That more votes would be taken from the liberal party, the center-right side of the liberal party, than of the left leaning wing of yeah or central wing of the conservative party in the same way that like if the liberals and ndp had merged a lot of those voters would have just gone to the conservatives yes like i think that's like you know i think we can agree on that like, yeah the, the, the paul thing, martin but, and the yeah. Kretzian self-described yeah. liberals from those yeah. eras who have those value sets who are yeah. still fisc- pretty hard-edged fiscally fiscally conservative well i think Kretzian's instincts were not that but you know circumstances but yeah anyway yeah. Um, no, like certainly you'd have some liberals who would like be okay with it, uh, but yeah, same thing. Uh, a lot of conservatives would, uh, and a lot of liberals would just be like, oh yeah, this seems like a, you know, I find that the the modern liberal, and this is basically Scott Gilmore's thing, frankly. He's like, ah, the modern liberal party spends too much, and I don't. And the thing is, it's purely aesthetic, really. It's he doesn't like the brand, he doesn't like the way they sell themselves, he doesn't like the way they talk, but on policy, I'd say. There's really not a whole lot of daylight between the Liberals and Scott Gilmore. I mean, if there is, it would be interesting to see. Like, I, I would just I would just love to know the politics within that household. Yeah. Well, I mean, of... He says even like, oh, I grew up in Alberta and I remember the, the national energy policy. And it's like, okay, well, I feel like this is a lot more tribal and aesthetic than it is like actually a substantive disagreement with the stuff the Conservative Party stands for. Yeah. That's that's my take anyway. No, I I'd agree with that. Yeah. All right. So that's Scott Gilmore uh, wrapped up. Uh, so over the last week, as I mentioned at the beginning, um, the Conservative Party leadership race, which I suppose we just sort of tangentially touched on, uh, new membership deadline uh, to be able to vote in the leadership election passed. Yes. If on... you don't have your membership now, you cannot buy a membership. No. Well, I mean, you or can. You, yeah. <laughs> you just won't be able to vote. Uh, so like, it, you know, just don't. Uh, it'd be dumb. 
So uh, a busy week for for that. A lot of drama swirling around. A lot of the, the unveiling of the numbers that we've all been waiting for. So basically, what happens with parties, uh, party leadership races? People hold back their registrations and then basically dump them on mass, right? Or is that? Or are they just releasing the information? No, they do. So this is less like a nomination and just its own thing. Yeah. Okay. So party or cam leadership campaigns are incentivized to try and sign up members through their campaign. Right. And what they do is they will hold on to your registration paper until the very last minute because with your registration comes your contact information. Okay, and then it goes out to all the other leadership. Yeah. Okay, so it is like a nomination campaign. And now. so once that is dumped into the party, yeah, everyone else has two months to email you. Yeah. Whereas if you've signed someone up as a member five months prior, mm -hmm. you have five months of unimpeded access to that person's right. phone and their email inbox. So, so in that sense, it is like a standard like nomination race anywhere in the country. Yeah, yeah where people- like You want to hold them back. You hold them back, you dump yeah. them at the last minute, and then you have a comparison of who has the greatest number yeah. of uh, candidate or uh, uh, memberships registered. So the, the top line numbers um, are as follows. Kevin O'Leary claimed 35,000. Uh, Maxim Bernier claimed to match that. Uh, <laughs> just so conveniently. That, yeah, not, very conveniently. Not higher, not lower, yeah, exactly it's kind of the just same. Like, waits five minutes. Yeah, me, me too. I also got that. <laughs> exact uh, same. Don't worry about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Kelly Leach, 30,000. Michael Chong, a very asterisked 17,000. Yeah, do you want to and, explain the asterisks on yeah, absolutely. 17,000? So he says he got 5,000 through like the web sign-up, and then the other 12,000 through either like other websites that were meant for like liberals, like liberals and NDPers, like, hey, join to keep the other guys from winning websites, or people just like sending him like Facebook messages or tweets or like Facebook posts to his page. Being like, hey, I bought a membership for you. So, totally unvettable. Yeah, um, so he has a confirmed, well, not confirmed, but loosely confirmed, admitted 5,000. And then 12,000 as a just arbitrary man, number he's selected. I, I will be honest with you, I would have hated to be one of those staffers that had to, like, try to make that number look halfway plausible. Wow, we've only signed up 5,000. Let's, uh, <laughs> how can we inflate this number? Yeah, talk about underwhelming. How many people have tweeted at us at the <laughs> in the past two months? All right, let's half that number and call it a does, day. Does everyone who, um, who visited the uh, sanitary bathroom in Guatemala count? <laughs> Actually, does Leon McLaren count? Yes. Also, yeah, folks, we are so sorry that, uh, that story dropped like three hours after we recorded. Uh, I'm just <sighs> devastated that we'll never get to talk about it. Anyway, moving on. Uh, Lisa Rate, 10.6 thousand, uh, so 10,600. And uh, PetersonLeader.ca, Rick Peterson, under 1,000. And I don't know that we saw any figures for anybody else. Yeah, it's it's up to the uh, each of the parties to make their own announcement, uh, sort of informally. Yeah. I believe there might be a formal announcement by the Conservative Party in about a month as to what the actual number of last-minute... Uh, Memberships dumped uh, by each uh, uh, candidate was, but for now we don't have those numbers, so we'll have to go off their uh, their own honest accountings. Excellent. So also today, the Sunday, uh, April second, was uh, another conservative leadership debate. Yes. We are both done watching these. I think. Um, yeah, it was another one. <laughs> so this one was in, I believe, Toronto. Uh, the moderator was Joe Oliver. Uh, it seems sort of set up as a town hall format, but I can't say I watched it. No, I didn't either. Yeah, I think uh, the time. I, I don't think we're going to get anything else new. Interesting there, or, there, yeah. yeah, there's not a whole lot new coming out of it. However, I'll, I'll look forward to the analysis tomorrow. We did have one of uh, this campaign's great policy announcements this week. 
Oh my! I was I was just <laughs> over the moon. This is a yeah, game changer. This is a real and the, the worst part. Of, anyway, well, yeah. So Andrew Shear this week comes out with a, a rhetorical question on Twitter: Should gas at the pump have national origin flags? So basically, like when you buy gas, it'll like be like, oh, this is Saudi gas, or oh, this is good Canadian oil. Hmm, gonna have a sip of that right now. Uh, which it's just the stupidest thing. <laughs> So as a policy, okay, there's there's a little bit of background here that makes it even more ridiculous, which is uh, he recently lost another endorsement. Um, yeah, from the caucus chair in the Senate, David Wells. Yeah, David Wells jumped over to the Kevin O'Leary. O'Leary campaign. The bowing to the strong has begun. Um, <laughs> when asked about it, uh, Shear's campaign said it was over uh, a controversial piece of policy he was announcing in two days' time. Yeah. When Wells was asked about oh Shear's campaign statement, he said something along the lines of, "What? <laughs> what, what, what are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about." I mean, to be fair to David Wells and to Andrew Shear, I would also have dropped my endorsement of him over this. Over this, yes. He's <laughs> so it's so dumb. A, bri- a bridge too far. It's so dumb. So I I think it's important context for anyone not familiar with sort of free trade agreements that what's called cool or country of origin labeling is something that is often fought in free trade agreements and sort of... Our our official position is, in fact, that it's not cool. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) It's not cool at all because it's seen as a protectionist measure. Yeah. It's seen as a way of trying to box out and sort of undercut free trade agreements. Yeah. Not that we have a free trade agreement with Saudi Arabia, Arabia, but it's just liberalized trade in general. Yeah. That the idea is you put, you know, made in China in the small print at the bottom you don't force countries to send over their products draped in the Chinese flag uh, for consumers to be able to decide, like, like initially without anything else that, like, oh, Chinese product, Chinese product, Chinese product. I'm the idea is to Canadian, just yeah. let them all compete on their merits. A commodity is a commodity is a commodity. Yeah, so that, that's one of the things that makes this sort of an anti-free trade. Yeah. And it sort of would undercut our position because we've been fighting country of origin labeling in free trade agreements, I believe, with yeah, for like the Canadian EU beef and, and stuff, like yeah. yeah, with Canadian beef. So it's sort of weird in that way, yeah. and also a terrible idea. I don't even know if the uh, petroleum manufacturing industry can really independently say where oil comes from because, like, that said, refineries you, accept multiple sources of oil. Do, so. do you know what absolutely, like, the, the one thing about this that would just be the best thing ever and would completely own would be that, like, all the, like, pickup dudes who love Sheer, like, oh, he becomes prime minister, hell yeah, we're gonna get our oil. And then, like, the Canadian oil is more expensive and they're just sitting there, like, pumping their, their Dodge Rams full of, like, you know, Saudi Arabian oil, and they're just like, they're like, oh, man. And, like, also the best part is that it would put, like, flags of uh, Muslim countries all over every gas station in the country, <laughs> which would just make a certain subset of uh, the Conservative Party incredibly angry also. So I actually think this is a great idea. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you do. I'm sure do. that's a very genuine interest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good stuff. So, yeah, that's uh, that's Andrew Shear. I think, honestly, like, at this point, he must just be, like, yeah, so I think sort of the background context here is that Andrew Shear has, uh, for a while, been considered to be sort of the third... He really fizzled. The third runner-up. Yeah. Uh, if, you, if you put Leach aside uh, as not likely to win, uh, Shear's sort of been seen as the consensus People candidate were sort of like, for he a could, long he time. He could come up the middle and sort of like... Yeah. I, 
he's like I think people were assuming he'd have a much stronger campaign than he did. He's been losing momentum, and a lot of that has been going to Aaron O'Toole. Yeah. Um, Sheer has been losing multiple endorsements, not only the David Wells one, but also to uh, a couple to O'Toole. Yeah. And so O'Toole is starting to become the consensus candidate. Well, and O'Toole got a Jeff Adetel's endorsement too. Is a prominent Quebec conservative uh, mm-hmm. who we've talked about before. Yeah, about a month like, ago, yeah. as as probably the most substantial endorsement of the race. And O'Toole has been uh, just this week. He did a fundraiser with uh, Peter McKay, which is pretty significant. I think Peter McKay has only done. He was doing one with Shears campaign yeah, as well. Yeah, and with O'Toole, I think. Yeah, yeah, he's right, he's yeah. done he one with both. O'Toole. Yeah. Um, but it's seen as a pretty big, like, yeah. sort of tacit endorsement of the individuals. He's obviously not having ones with Kelly O'Leary Leach or, or Kelly O'Leary. Leach. Yeah. Or, so I don't know if he's going to come out and formally endorse someone a little closer to the deadline. But that is sort of the one looming major endorsement uh, in the race. Yeah. Uh, presuming that Kenny won't endorse anyone. It does Al- seem that way. Although he has sort of disendorsed or stated that Kevin O'Leary is not uh, yeah. the man for the job. That is going to be really funny when he wins. No, it won't. <laughs> uh, the last thing we want to talk about today is uh, our old friend Brad Wall up to his up to his tricks. Uh, this week there was a bit of a kerfuffle between him and uh, Alberta Premier Rachel Notley um, about Alberta, or sorry, Brad Wall trying to incentivize, um, sending like a, a formal letter like personal letter to the the CEO of an energy company based in Calgary to try to get him to move to Alberta. So there are a couple of things that are weird about this. Uh, the first is that Alberta and Saskatchewan, and I think British Columbia as well, are part of the New West Partnership, which specifically forbids exactly this, uh, for one. And this was like a big, big thing where... Uh, Brad Wall was so, so proud of the new West partnership and how great it was going to be for, you know, economic freedom within Western Canada. And it was a big, like, signature thing that he tried to own. And he's now just, you know... Undermined it a little bit. Undermined it. Quite, I think, in a very blatant fuck you kind of way, um, which is very typical of Brad Wall, but there you go. Uh, and also, he happens to own shares in the company that involved in this yeah which apparently the uh, Saskatchewan conflict of interest commissioner has deemed not a conflict of interest I think it's small enough and that the move to Saskatchewan wouldn't materially impact the share price yeah he has something like $18,000 invested in the company so like make make of that what you will I mean like it's basically like yes it is odd but it's not like moving to Saskatchewan immediately like boost their profits and thus dividends by a major so it's just really kind of dickish like more than anything it's a bad look Um, I am not in favor of this in the slightest I think uh, jurisdiction like um, inter-jurisdictions, inter-provincial yeah. competition of this nature of saying you're not going to expand your company you're just going to change the tax base yeah. uh, where, your com- where your headquarters yeah, exactly. is located this happens often in the United States oh my god Planet, I was just thinking about that Planet Money did a really good episode on it are you thinking of the one between Kansas City and Kansas City? <laughs> The, the Missouri and Kansas side? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. There was, I was just thinking of that, too. That's a really good one. So it's an episode of a, an NPR podcast, Planet Money, that does economic stuff. And they'll do sort of quirky economic stories, one of which was about uh, two states competing to draw different headquarters, yeah. like literally miles yeah, across Kansas, the border to each Kansas other. It's Kansas and Missouri because Kansas City uh, is right on the border, and it's like a fairly major city with fairly major chunks on both sides. So it's very easy to just like 
you know, get people to like move across the street more or less. Yeah, you you swap, you move your headquarters like literally across the street in some jurisdictions, yeah. and that changes what tax base you pay into. Yeah, and also like you do this through like tax bribes essentially. Yeah, you which you is offer to say, you offer them deals. You you cut off your nose to spite the other person's face. Well, it's not to spite their face, but it's to get more money for you. Yeah, but even then, like with the tax breaks you're giving them. It's probably pretty trivial at the end of the day because even like in a border community, this is kind of tangential, but in a border community, you're not necessarily going to move yourself as a worker if your company headquarters moves across the street. So some of the, some of them are the actual buildings and the workers, yeah. but yeah, so you're not you're not lo- uh, losing the tax base of the individual, but you're mm-hmm. losing the sort of the corporate tax yeah. and the tax that they pay. Yeah. Um, but. So generally in the United States, this has been bad. Yeah, it's a race to the bottom. It, right? it's, like, yeah, it's short, short-term interest where it's much better instead of trying to peel business off of your neighboring province, you know, sort of just hold a common line. Yeah, and it's bad for bad for federalism and also bad for, you know, Canadian it's, taxpayers who then have to subsidize this, like, wasteful bickering. Yeah, it's bad for everyone involved and it gives uh, companies sort of this awkward uh, positioning to be able to leverage moving their headquarters yeah. intra or not interprovincially yeah. in order to get tax write-offs and, and perks and, that's a great and example extra land that. and free things. And like. That's a great example of what we like to call political economy on the left. So there you go. Yeah, uh, I think that'll that'll do it for us this week. Uh, once again, feel free. Actually, don't feel free. Feel unfree and compelled. <laughs> feel to, obligated uh, to uh, <laughs> review us on iTunes. We got a, a glowing review this week, so thank you to whoever wrote that. That was uh, that was very nice of you. I think we're nudging ahead of uh, CBC's podcast. Yeah, so. like and screw Eric Grenier. That like don't say that. Eric Grenier is very nice. <laughs> he seems fine. Uh, we'll surpass him though. Uh, Tan, do you have anything you want to say on the way out? No, that's uh, that's all for me. All right, everyone. Thanks, and have a great week. <laughs>